Romans chapter 15. Romans, the 15th chapter. We are fast approaching our conclusion of the study of Romans. And as I've mentioned in the last few weeks, we're now in the postscript, the PS. The formal part of the letter has just ended. And now Paul is beginning to, he ended in verse 13 actually. Now he's beginning to do some cleanup work and some personal correspondence. And I am finding that this section, so easy to skim over and skip over, is so dense with gospel application. Let me read verses 22 through 29. Today we're going to be looking at the anatomy of a faithful missionary. Last week we looked at the anatomy of a faithful minister, and this follows right on the heels. And by the way, next week it's the anatomy of a faithful mission-minded church. Verse 22, Paul says, For this reason, or this is why, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, on my way, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and and be helped on my way there by you, when I first enjoyed your company for a while, but now... I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go, I'll go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. At only two verses, it's the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's the shortest psalm. And curiously, it is in the exact center of Scripture. Psalm 117. What makes this short psalm so special is that it is not only the geographical center of the Bible, I think it's the theological center of the Bible. God does nothing by accident. He knew we liked geometric configurations. And here's the middle of the Bible. It's the central command of Scripture, the highest obligation of every person, the most far-reaching imperative, the most comprehensive expectation in the whole Bible. And I think it's the very heartbeat and DNA of God himself. It is the great commission of the Old Testament. The two verses of Psalm 117 express the goal and the motivation for missions. Let me read those two verses to you. I'll read them before you have opportunity to turn there, so just listen. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol, laud him, all 
peoples. For, the reason is, his loving kindness, his hesed, his covenantal faithfulness, his access to grace in his person is great toward us. And the truth or the faithfulness of the Lord never ends. It's everlasting. So, praise the Lord. This command given here to the nations to give God praise that he rightly deserves and will most securely and comprehensively bless them was framed in Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28. Verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think to be a Christian is at some level and an ever-growing measure to reflect the heart of the living God. And God's heart is to reach unreached people with the life-changing message of hope and salvation, the, the gospel. That is missions. It should be no surprise then that Paul was all in on an, un, an unmatched example of a missionary. I mean, he was a theologian. Read Romans, read Galatians. He, he was a, a pastor. See his interaction with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. But when you read the book of Acts, all that you study about Paul, you know what he was foremost above everything? He was a missionary. He left his three-year stint in Ephesus with Timothy. He left the pastorate to Timothy so that he could go and be a missionary. And I would be less than honest if I didn't tell you there have been so many times in, in my ministry and in my life, Kim and I have just swallowed hard and looked at each other and said, Maybe instead of encouraging people to go, maybe we should just go. And I I don't even know what our future has for that. Because I hear Paul in this passage, I get motivated and I get convicted. The entire Roman Empire, think about this, was touched by one man's missionary efforts, Paul. He made three harrowing and dangerous sacrificial journeys throughout the Mediterranean world and it was pretty serious. He was shipwrecked, beaten, jeered at, arrested. By his own admission, he, he was not physically impressive. 2 Corinthians 10, 10 and Galatians 4, 4, Paul says, I'm really not much to look at. In, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I'm really not much to listen to. So I'm not handsome and I'm not a great speaker, but what I have to say is pretty important. He traveled and he went and he preached. At the time that he pens Romans, this is important, he's sitting in Corinth. He's sitting in Corinth. If you go back and read um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he's sitting in Corinth having 
uh, collected a, an offering from the Greco-Roman world, the Greek world there in Macedonia and, and Achaia, which is uh, the, uh, from the Peloponnesus up through Corinth, the Isthmus, I'll show you this in a minute, through the mainland of Greece, which is Macedonia and up into Achaia. He had gone to the churches there and said, there are struggles in Jerusalem. The saints down there have a problem. What problem do they have? Historians tell us at this time there was a famine. And when, there were the, when the famine hit Jerusalem, these people have been ostracized from their jobs, ostracized from their families. They were mostly Jews who had been kicked out of everything that gave them support. And, and honestly, they were starving. So Paul takes up an offering. And at the time of that offering being taken up, he sits down in Corinth and writes the book of Romans. He writes a letter to Rome. And he did so in 56 AD, AD 56. Why is that important? You know, it's always amazing to me how geography and dates seem rote until you really look at their attachment to the realities of Scripture. If you're a student of history, you'll know who was on the throne of Rome in 56. From AD 54 to AD 68, those 13 years, Rome was under the control of Nero. Nero hated Christians. Nero would begin to kill Christians. Nero would legislate that Christianity was a capital offense worthy of death. I never knew where that term came from. We were on our church history tour in Rome a few weeks ago and on Capitol Hill in, in the city of Rome, there's, there's a giant cliff. And capital punishment was when they would bring prisoners to the capital, take them up on that cliff, bind them, and push them off to their death. Well, since everyone couldn't be brought to Rome, capital punishment became a synonym for being killed for a crime, for an offense. And the book of Acts is written in the middle of Nero's terror. So as we come to our text this morning, we find the practical reason for the theological treatise that we know as the epistle of Romans. You know why Paul wrote Romans? Oh, I know there's theology. I know there's gospel depth and richness. You know why he wrote Romans? To ask for missionary support. All that we've read before this is to confirm the gospel they understood so that he could take that gospel one day to Spain. Paul desires the partnership and participation of the Romans in his desire to take the gospel as far west as he knew. And in this simple appeal that Paul gives in the verses before us, I think we can observe a perspective of a faithful missionary. We're seeing a real life missionary. He is dissecting his heart right in front of us. He's gonna to look to the future, but he's also not gonna to look to the future at the expense of looking at the present. The passage breaks down very simply into two outlooks that Paul had. Two outlooks of a faithful 
missionary mindset. And I think of my friends on the mission field. I think of the missionaries that we support right now. And I have heard, I have seen, I have read newsletters where these outlooks and these, this mindset is so clearly articulated and so heavily burdened on them that it gives me new reason to carry it with them. Two outlooks of a faithful missionary mindset, which we're going to see in Paul. The first outlook is in verses 22 to 24. Strategic desires for the future. Strategic desires for the future. Now, we're going to break that down into a couple of sections as well. First of all, in verse 22 and 23, he looks at the present struggles, the fact that the present struggles that he has... Do not discourage future desires. That's important. What he's struggling with presently doesn't discourage future desires. Verse 22, for this reason, or you can render that, this is why I have often been prevented from coming to you. We found out in chapter one, he longed to go to Rome. He wanted to be blessed by the Romans. He wanted to bless them with their exchange of spiritual gifts, their exchange of gospel love and truth with each other. And he wanted to preach to them and be encouraged by them. Here we'll find out he wanted to be comforted and, and equipped, nurtured by them. But he says, I have often been prevented. Now, if you love English, and I know some of you do, you'll look at the tense of this verb, and this is a what? Active or passive? It's passive. I have been, I was Prevented. That means someone or something prevented Paul from going to Rome. If you read the book of Acts, where Paul, uh, the Holy Spirit was directing Paul into every city he was supposed to go, who was preventing Paul from going to Rome? God was. He completely understood that. Read uh, from Acts chapter 9 on, and you can see this. He understood that. The Holy Spirit was directing him where to go. And also saying, by the way, everywhere you go, you're going to endure chains and beatings. And ultimately, you're going to die for your faith. And Paul wanted to get to Rome before that happened. And we'll see in a few weeks. He got to Rome. And that's where it happened. I like how Jewett, commentator, describes the multiple factors that had hindered Paul. He says, when we reconstruct the events of the two to three years immediately preceding the time of the writing of Romans, the hindrances in advancing further along the ark from Jerusalem to Illyricum are obvious. He says, in my sketch of Paul's career, I count several imprisonments, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, Philemon 1, Philippians 1. So I count several imprisonments, congregational problems in Colossae, congregational challenges in Laodicea, congregational problems in Philippi, deep con congregational issues in Corinth, and these postponed his plans to deliver the Jerusalem offering to Jerusalem because of the conflicts and the threats from the zealots and extensive travels such as the abortive trip to Corinth and the anxious trip to Troas in search of Titus bearing news about his alienated congregation. 
his life was hard. Every day he woke up, things were a mess. Every place he went, there were problems to solve. All the churches that he interacted with were having church splits and, and problems and bickering. And, and yet we find him here, happy to go on along the way. I, I'm, I'm, we'll come back to this in a moment. I look at Paul's experience and I think, I mean, if that had been me, I would have been in serious Christian counseling. He wasn't. He was providing it. Now, as I mentioned, Paul is writing from Corinth, this book of Romans. And if you look over at chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, he tells us that, um, that he's writing from the port city of Kenchuria. This was the port city several miles from Corinth and most Scholars believe that that was a church plant from the city of Corinth. It was pretty far away. Add to that that Gaius and Erastus are uh, mentioned who were both associated with Corinth. And you understand he's there in Corinth. But if you look briefly at 16, 1 and 2, Phoebe seems to be the one given the great responsibility, this woman, to take the letter, take the scroll of Romans from Corinth to Rome. We'll look at this much more significantly in just a few weeks. He says, I commend to you, Phoebe. I'm sending to you, I'm sending along this letter with Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, which is at that port city in Corinth, that you receive her in the Lord. We know she was going there, and he's commending her to, that, to them with this letter in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Look at verse 22. God is preventing Paul from going to Rome. No complaining, no whining. A sweet acceptance of the providence of God. He is looking for places to minister, longs for places to go. Verse 23 says, no further place for me to go in these regions. That doesn't mean he can't find a hotel. Doesn't mean he can't find a place to stay. He means there's no place I can go where the gospel hasn't been preached and someone is there who to faithfully extend on the ministry. And then there's this little emotional footnote at the end of verse 23. I have for many years, think about that, many years had a longing to come to you in Rome. Wow, could that be said of our neighborhoods, workplaces, schools? Do we have a longing to take the gospel where it's misunderstood or not understood in our immediate and even extended context to family members at family reunions and Thanksgiving and Christmas gatherings to the cubicle next door to your classmates, to your neighborhood. Are we burdened by that? Paul says, I'm not gonna be happy until I tell someone who doesn't know the gospel, the gospel. I'm not gonna be happy where there's not a church to tell people about Christ He looked to the future. 
and wanted to be with these precious saints that he had grown to love from a distance. His current struggles didn't discourage that. But secondly here, his future missions involves corporate partnership. This is important looking at the future, and this is implications for you and me. His future missions involved involves corporate partnerships. Verse 24, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way by you as I'm going there when I first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wanted to go to Spain. It was west of where Italy is, west of where we would call Switzerland is, and France, and wanted to go to, to Spain, the westernmost part of the known world. He wanted to preach the gospel where it had never been heard, never been proclaimed. He intended to take a route, by the way, that would go through Rome so he could be helped by them and so that he could be encouraged by them. He could enjoy their their company. He could see these people that he knew and loved. And this effort would involve a corporate partnership with the Roman believers there in that church in Italy. He lets them know he was going to be asking for funds for the furtherance of the gospel. The verb he uses there, which means to send forth, uh, is used in Acts 15, Acts 20, Acts 21, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, uh, 16, 6, 2 Corinthians 1, 16, Titus 3, John 6, as asking for resources for gospel truth. He needed their financial help. He couldn't tent make. He needed to go. He wanted to go. And he also asks this. I'm going to need your help. I'm going to be helped there on my way to Spain by you. When I first enjoyed your company for a while. You remember when John Glass was here just, uh, I think it was last year. He was talking about how you can serve a missionary. Do you remember one of the things he said is to give them a respite, to rest, to come to a loving congregation who would not want missions reports every week and not want to hear all the great things but would help them with the struggle and just be encouraged. I think that's what Paul is saying here. I just want to enjoy you. I'm going to go where the the people are hostile to the gospel. Before I do, can I just sit with my friends? Can I just be encouraged by people who believe the same thing I believe? True, genuine fellowship. I just ask, are we that kind of church who will be ready to provide our missionaries with friendship and fellowship when they visit? To say, will you just sit and rest? Can we talk about life, joys and struggles? We often think of them as the heroes and in this, Paul says, no, no, no. I need some ministry really emotional. He looked to the future. Every missionary I know always is, here's what I want to do. Here's what I can do. If we had more resources, if we had more people, if we had more funds. By the way, this uh, verb he uses about wanting financial resources is also used of wanting personnel to go with him. I want to be that kind of church who looks at missionaries when they come and say, it says, enjoy our company and rest. And what do you need? Here's the coat off our back if we can meet that need. 
He was looking to the future. Now, I know you've seen the end of this movie and read the end of this book. We don't think he ever made it to Spain. But he would make it to Rome. And from Rome would go to heaven. It's possible that the enjoyment he is asking for here was on the front porch of his journey to heaven. Now, this is what I think is so compelling about a missionary's heart. He had these plans. He's looking strategically at the future, but we come to this second outlook of a faithful missionary mindset. Not only does he strategically desire for the future, but secondly, he has immediate care for the present. He didn't sacrifice what needed to happen right in front of him for what he wanted to happen out ahead of him. Specifically, we'll break this down, he had care for the saints and that care for the saints precedes passion for the unreached. This is such a powerful priority. Paul wanted to go to Spain where the gospel had never been preached but he could not let go of the care of the saints in Jerusalem and run to Spain He sacrificed his ministerial desire and heart and longings for doing what he knew was right, right in front of him in the church that needed him in Jerusalem. Verse 25. But now, now I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. Stop right there. I want to illustrate this a little bit for you. This is really important that that you see this. So I want to show you a map. The maps in your Bible are so helpful. Please learn how to use your atlas and please learn how to use your maps. They tell such a story. Paul is writing right here at this isthmus between the Peloponnesus of Greece and mainland Greece, which was all called Macedonia. Achaia is up here as well. That's where he's taking the offering. And he's gonna take this offering right here at this little isthmus over to Jerusalem. But this journey from Greece or uh, from uh, Corinth to Jerusalem wasn't a straight shot. He would get on a boat and the boat would go, it would stay close to land all the way around, get this, 1,800 miles to get to Jerusalem. (laughs) No plane. A boat and sometimes catching different boats by transversing across the land. Where did he want to go? He's in Greece and he wants to go to Spain, which would have meant a straight shot, probably around the toe of Italy, up close to Sardinia and over to Spain, 700 miles. Instead, he adds 3,000 miles. Yeah, I travel a fair amount and I, I fly. I, I've done 3,000 miles in, in a morning. This would be years. Years. Now here's, here's where I see Paul's heart and his care for the saints and his sacrifice of his longings to go. Look at this distance. He, he was right here. He just wrote, why didn't he take the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, and just go 
up, stop at Rome, and then go on to Spain. Instead, he goes backwards to go forward. Imagine swimming across a long lake, and you're almost across the lake, over halfway, and then you decide that you want to take something from the shore with you, and you go all the way back to go all the way across. That, that's what he's doing. This is not insignificant. This is a major out-of-the-way journey he's about to take. I think it takes a map sometimes to fully understand what Paul is doing. For him to say, I want to come see you, but now I'm going to Jerusalem. Imagine if someone was hiking to see you. And they were in Denver, and they said, it's going to take a few months, and I'm going to walk over and see you in Kansas City. But before that, I'm going to hike over to L.A. That's what he's saying. In the service of the saints, if we don't take care of the saints at home, we will never have the credibility or resources to take care of the missions far away. There's a priority that Paul has here. It was no small decision. John Stott calculates this and he says, it would have been way more than 3,000 miles by boat for Paul to have gotten to Spain by way of going backwards to Jerusalem. <laughs> for the good of these saints in Jerusalem, taking them this offering, the unity of the church, he doubled the length of his journey And it was done by boat and on foot. You know, what Paul did, I just... It's overwhelming. We go to this passage often, but just listen to it now. Are these false preachers servants of Christ? I, I, I speak as if insane. I more so... In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, probably at Lystra when they stoned him and left him for dead out in a ditch. Three times I was shipwrecked. He spent a lot of time on boats. A night and a day I spent in the deep. He was shipwrecked, floating on, uh, on something he found from the shipwreck out in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, floods and getting across rivers, dangers from robbers. Think about carrying enough money to help a whole church. You're not gonna transfer it with your bank account. You're carrying this, these coins with you. Dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, from the Jews. They tried to kill him. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, wherever I was, in the city, out of the city. Dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. Sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then I also have the daily pressure and the concerns of the church with me. Paul's passion to take the gospel to unreached ears was so pervasive 
and so persuasive. But it never, ever diminished his need and desire to take care of those who already knew Christ. I've seen a lot of people who operate in the opposite way, honestly. Let me give you a picture if I can. I'm going to give you an illustration. Uh, Imagine two parents. And these parents, they have four children. They love these four children. But they, they get this passion to want to adopt children. Desires become discussions. Discussions become incessant internet searches. These parents become so passionate about adopting children they don't, do not know. It's the only thing they talk about. It's all they talk about even to their own children. And then something unintended and tragic takes place. Their passion to adopt children that they do not know begins to occupy more and more time and energy, energy, energy And they stop giving attention to their own children. Now transfer that spiritually. To think about missions and outreach is wonderful. It doesn't compete with, it coincides with care for the saints who already know Christ. The world will know, John 13, they will know we love God when when we love one another. Boy, I long for our church body to equally desire to shepherd the flock of God here in our church and at the same time desire to tell unreached people about the gospel, which brings us to this second part. Care for the saints includes physical needs. It's pretty, pretty much a punch in the stomach in a good way for all of us, especially when we have so many friends who just experienced life-threatening and property-damaging issues down in the flood in Houston. He describes this. It's really a, a narrative in verse 26 for Macedonia and Achaia. Remember that, that harsh portion of Greece that we know as Greece today. Have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were largely Gentiles. And the Jews, the, excuse me, the church in Jerusalem was largely Jews. That's important. Yes, they were pleased to take up this offering to do so. And they are indebted to them. This is so riveting. In what way are the Greek Christians in Macedonia indebted to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? They never met. How can they be indebted to them? For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Paul tells, this is important. Paul tells the Gentile believers, you will always owe a debt to the Jews because your Savior is the Jewish Messiah. You will always have a debt of gratitude to the Jews. This was important. Why? Remember chapter 15, chapter 14? Because they were at each other's throats. And he's telling the church in Rome, make sure that the Jews and the Gentiles are getting along. And then he uses this example so brilliantly to say, these Greek Christians took up an offering. They sacrificed. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They joyfully, it says, hilariously, overwhelmingly, laughingly, took up material offering to give to these Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were starving to death. And they never even met them. Wow. 
He tells what's going to happen, verse 28. Therefore, when I finish this, collecting this offering, I put my seal on this fruit of theirs, and I will go on by way of you to Spain. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and deal with this issue. Then I'm going to come up and to Spain, and on my way to Spain, I'm going to, I'm going to slide by Rome. I'm going to take one of those ships. Some of them went straight across, and some of them's like, you know, connecting flights and nonstop flights. Some of the ships he could take up by Rome, and he wanted to stop there to see them. I love what Tom Schreiner says about this. The debt here was not a legal one imposed on the Gentiles, but a moral debt because of the salvific blessings received from the Jews. Thus, Gentile believers should be partially eager, particularly eager, to assist the Jerusalem saints materially. It's another piece of evidence in in the book of Romans that Paul is not surrendering the salvation historical priority of Israel. They are specially worthy of support because of their election as God's people historically, and that's Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. What a heart. And lastly, in verse 29, we see that this immediate care for the saints meant care for the saints maintains spiritual optimism. I, I, I mentioned it to you earlier. If, if this was me, I would be an emotional wreck. Every single day is problems. Every single day is threats. Every single day is loss. Every single day is beatings and ostracizing and running for your life. And I love 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I would be tempted to say, I know when I come to you, I'm going to need a vacation and lots of counseling. I love this. So, so interesting to me. He says, I will come in the pleroma of Christ. You know where that word is else, where else that word is used? The fullness of Christ. Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, but be pleroma. Be Filled with the Spirit. It was used of a wind that moved along a sail by filling the sail and moving the boat. I will come in the fullness, the blessing, the filling of the blessing of Christ. So, yes, we believe in the filling of the Holy Spirit, but there's also the filling of the Lord Jesus. And that should never be a competition in the Trinity. He said, I'm going to come. I may be limping. I might have stitches. But I'm going to come being moved along with the blessing of the living, resurrected Christ. He doesn't ask for their sympathy. He doesn't ask for their counsel. More interesting in providing them a blessing than receiving sympathy, empathy, admiration, or even counsel. Now, the implications of this text for you and me at Mission Road are are just enormous. And I found myself so convicted and burdened this week in looking at this. John Piper says, when it comes to missions, there are three classes of people Goers, senders, and the disobedience. 
Those who are disobedient. Those who are going, those who are sending, and those who are disobedient. Where's our church and where are you? I just have to ask at this moment, I just, can I just confess something to you? I am praying. I, I know our, our, our missions committee is praying. I know that uh, Chris, you and I had um, uh, coffee a few weeks ago. We were talking about praying that there would be goers from here. Hey, parents, have you ever prayed? Can you see a way to pray that God might raise up your children to go to a dangerous place and maybe struggle and be persecuted and die for the gospel? And that that would be our crown. Do we take another implication? Do we take care of the missionaries seriously and personally? It's so easy when your inbox is full. Get an email from Johnny Gravino or Massimo or John Glass and you say, someone else is reading this. Someone else is taking care of this. Some, there is no someone else. It's you. It's me. Just received something in this week, an email where Massimo is asking for prayer for an opportunity he had. Do you stop and pray? Will you? Can we? Stop and pray. I'm so humbled by Jeff Brown who shared about our mission trip, or rather our church history trip a few weeks ago. He told me this, he told Bob rather this on the trip and, and confessed this to the congregation after spending time with some missionaries he, over there. He said, I gotta tell you, I've never prayed for a missionary in my life. That wasn't discouraging to me. What was encouraging is that he was going to start. Do we steward our finances personally and as a church in such a way that we're ready to give to ministry needs? Man, I want to be sacrificial like the Macedonians. What else do we need to buy at gospel cost? We'll get into this next week, but do we long to reach the unreached? When's the last time you prayed with your family, prayed with your friends, prayed as a care group to say, where, where is the gospel not? And how can I send or go because I don't want to disobey? I can't resist giving you a peek into next week. Look at verse 30. The word urge is, is not the right word. Now I beg you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, struggle and strive together with me in your prayers to God 
for me. Paul says, pray for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Where he was going back to Jerusalem, they, there was a bounty on his head. Remember, they had turned him over to Felix and Festus. Agrippa. He knew it was trouble. Pray for me, they're after me. That my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, satisfactory. So that I may come to you Enjoy, happy by the will of God and find refreshing and rest in your company. That's next week. And now may the God of peace be with you all, amen. What is the anatomy of a faithful church? Read verses 30 through 33 and come back next week. And let's roll up our sleeves to be busy about this. If the gospel is true, it's worthy of everything. I mean, did you hear what we, were, did you hear what we had the audacity to sing? Ever, only, always for thee. Really? I, mean, I want that to be really. Does that include, does that include our helping out in the extension of missions in the world? It certainly did in Paul's mindset. Listen, if you, if this doesn't make sense to you, I just want to tell you, there, there, is, there are unreached people in our, in our city. There are unreached people likely here today that you just don't really understand or get it. There is a Savior, Jesus, God in flesh, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, traveled around Israel, perfect, taught holiness and righteousness, and died as a sacrifice for you in our place before God because the wages of sin is death. And he didn't stay dead. He's alive. He rose three days after he was crucified. If you want to know more about that, I just want to beg you to please, please talk to someone around you. Come to our prayer room. We want the saints here to be saints here, right? And just fair warning. Listen, next week is a heavy and joyful passage that we need to wade through as a church together. Read it, pray it, think about it this week. Let's go into it having it fresh in our minds so that we're ready to labor and strive in prayer for those who are going to do the things like Paul is doing.